Chapter Twelve of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Grey. Chapter Twelve: The Invisible Hand. Jane received a letter from Bishop Dyer, not in his own handwriting, which stated that the abrupt termination of their interview had left him in some doubt as to her future conduct. A slight injury had incapacitated him from seeking another meeting at present, the letter went on to say, and ended with a request which was virtually a command that she call upon him at once. The reading of the letter acquainted Jane Witherstein with the fact that something within her had all but changed— she sent no reply to Bishop Dyer, nor did she go to see him. On Sunday she remained absent from the service, for the second time in years, and though she did not actually suffer, there was a deadlock of feelings deep within her, and the waiting for a balance to fall on either side was almost as bad as suffering. She had a gloomy expectancy of untoward circumstances, and with it a keen-edged curiosity to watch developments. She had a half-formed conviction that her future conduct, as related to her churchmen, was beyond her control, and would be governed by their attitude toward her. Something was changing in her, forming, waiting for decision, to make it a real and fixed thing. She had told Lassiter that she felt helpless and lost in the fateful tangle of their lives, and now she feared that she was approaching the same chaotic condition of mind in regard to her religion. It appalled her to find that she questioned phases of that religion— Absolute faith had been her serenity. Though leaving her faith unshaken, her serenity had been disturbed, and now it was broken by open war between her and her ministers. That something within her, a whisper, which she had tried in vain to hush, had become a ringing voice, and it called to her to wait. She had transgressed no laws of God. Her churchmen, however invested with the power and the glory of a wonderful creed, however they sat in inexorable judgment of her, must now practice toward her the simple, common, Christian virtue they professed to preach, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Jane Witherstein, waiting in darkness of mind, remained faithful still. But it was darkness that must soon be pierced by light. If her faith were justified, if her churchmen were trying only to intimidate her, the fact would soon be manifest, as would their failure, and then she would redouble her zeal toward them, and toward what had been the best work of her life, work for the welfare and happiness of those among whom she lived, Mormon and Gentile alike. If that secret intangible power closed its toils round her again, if that great invisible hand moved here and there and everywhere, slowly paralyzing her with its mystery and its inconceivable sway over her affairs, then she would know beyond doubt that it was not chance, nor jealousy, nor intimidation, nor ministerial wrath at her revolt, but a cold and calculating policy thought out long before she was born, a dark immutable will of whose empire she and all that was hers was but an atom. Then might come her ruin. Then might come her fall into black storm. Yet she would rise again, and to the light. God would be merciful to a driven woman who had lost her way. A week passed. Little Fay played and prattled, and pulled at Lassiter's big black guns. The rider came to Witherstein House oftener than ever. Jane saw a change in him, though it did not relate to his kindness and gentleness. He was quieter and more thoughtful. 
While playing with Fay or conversing with Jane, he seemed to be possessed of another self that watched with cool, roving eyes, that listened, listened always, as if the murmuring amber stream brought messages, and the moving leaves whispered something. Lassiter never rode bells into the court any more, nor did he come by the lane or the paths. When he appeared, it was suddenly and noiselessly out of the dark shadow of the grove. "'I left bells out in the sage,' he said, one day at the end of that week. "'I must carry water to him.' "'Why not let him drink at the trough, or here?' asked Jane, quickly. "'I reckon it'd be safer for me to slip through the grove. I've been watched when I rode in from the sage.' "'Watched? By whom?' by a man who thought he was well hid. But my eyes are pretty sharp. And Jane, he went on, almost in a whisper, I reckon it'd be a good idea for us to talk low. You're spot on here by your women. Lassiter, she whispered in turn, that's hard to believe. My women love me. What of that? he asked. Of course they love you. But they're Mormon women. Jane's old rebellious loyalty clashed with her doubt. "'I won't believe it,' she replied stubbornly. "'Well, then, just act natural and talk natural, and pretty soon—give them time to hear us—pretend to go over there to the table, and then quick-like make a move for the door and open it.' "'I will,' said Jane, with heightened color. Lassiter was right. He never made mistakes. He would not have told her unless he positively knew— yet jane was so tenacious of faith that she had to see with her own eyes and so constituted that to employ even such small deceit toward her women made her ashamed and angry for her shame as well as theirs then a singular thought confronted her that made her hold up this simple ruse which hurt her though it was well justified against the deceit she had wittingly and eagerly used toward lassiter the difference was staggering in its suggestion of that blindness of which he had accused her fairness and justice and mercy that she had imagined were anchor cables to hold fast her soul to righteousness had not been hers in the strange biased duty that had so exalted and confounded her presently jane began to act her little part to laugh and play with fay to talk of horses and cattle to lassiter then she made deliberate mention of a book in which she kept records of all pertaining to her stock, and she walked slowly toward the table, and when near the door she suddenly whirled and thrust it open. Her sharp action nearly knocked down a woman who had undoubtedly been listening. "'Hester,' said Jane sternly, "'you may go home, and you need not come back.' Jane shut the door and returned to Lassiter. Standing unsteadily, she put her hand on his arm." She let him see that doubt had gone, and how this stab of disloyalty pained her. "'Spies! My own women! How miserable!' she cried, with flashing, tearful eyes. "'I hate to tell you,' he replied. By that she knew he had long spared her. "'It's begun again, that work in the dark.' "'Nay, Lassiter, it never stopped.' So bitter certainty claimed her at last, and trust fled Witherstein House, and fled forever. The women who owed much to Jane Witherstein changed not in love for her, nor in devotion to their household work, but they poisoned both by a thousand acts of stealth and cunning and duplicity. Jane broke out once, and caught them in strange, stone-faced, unhesitating falsehood. 
Thereafter she broke out no more. She forgave them, because they were driven. Poor, fettered, and sealed Hagars, how she pitied them! What terrible thing bound them and locked their lips, when they showed neither consciousness of guilt toward their benefactress, nor distress at the slow wearing apart of long-established and dear ties? "'The blindness again!' cried Jane Witherstein. "'In my sisters, as in me. Oh, God!' There came a time when no words passed between Jane and her women. Silently they went about their household duties, and secretly they went about the underhand work to which they had been bidden. The gloom of the house, and the gloom of its mistress, which darkened even the bright spirit of little Fay, did not pervade these women. Happiness was not among them, but they were aloof from gloom. They spied and listened, they received and sent secret messengers, and they stole Jane's books and records, and finally the papers that were deeds of her possessions. Through it all they were silent, wrapped in a kind of trance. Then, one by one, without leave or explanation or farewell, they left Witherstein House, and never returned. Coincident with this disappearance, Jane's gardeners and workers in the alfalfa fields and stablemen quit her, not even asking for their wages. Of all her Mormon employees about the great ranch, only Jurd remained. He went on with his duty, but talked no more of the change than if it had never occurred. Jurd said Jane, what stock you can't take care of, turn out in the sage. Let your first thought be for Black Star and Night. Keep them in perfect condition, run them every day, and watch them always. Though Jane Witherstein gave them such liberality, she loved her possessions. She loved the rich green stretches of alfalfa, and the farms, and the grove, and the old stone house, and the beautiful, ever-faithful amber spring, and every one of a myriad of horses and colts and burrows and fowls, down to the smallest rabbit that nipped her vegetables. But she loved best her noble Arabian steeds. In common with all riders of the upland sage, Jane cherished two material things, the cold, sweet, brown water that made life possible in the wilderness, and the horses which were a part of that life. When Lassiter asked her what Lassiter would be without his guns, he was assuming that his horse was part of himself. So Jane loved Black Star and Night, because it was her nature to love all beautiful creatures, perhaps all living things. And then she loved them because she herself was of the sage, and in her had been born and bred the rider's instinct to rely on his four-footed brother. And when Jane gave Jurd the order to keep her favorites trained down to the day, it was a half-conscious admission that presaged a time when she would need her fleet horses. Jane had now, however, no leisure to brood over the coils that were closing round her. Mrs. Larkin grew weaker as the August days began. She required constant care. There was little Fay to look after, and such household work as was imperative. Lassiter put bells in the stable with the other racers, and directed his efforts to a closer attendance upon Jane. She welcomed the change. He was always at hand to help, and it was her fortune to learn that his boast of being awkward around women had its root in humility, and was not true. His great brown hands were skilled in a multiplicity of ways which a woman might have envied. He shared Jane's work, and was of especial help to her in nursing Mrs. Larkin. The woman suffered most at night, and this often broke Jane's rest. So it came about that Lassiter would stay by Mrs. Larkin during the day when she needed care, and Jane would make up the sleep she lost in night watches. 
Mrs. Larkin at once took kindly to the gentle Lassiter, and, without ever asking who or what he was, praised him to Jane. "'He's a good man, and loves children,' she said. How sad to hear this truth spoken of a man whom Jane thought lost beyond all redemption. Yet ever and ever Lassiter towered above her, and behind or through his black, sinister figure shone something luminous that strangely affected Jane. Good and evil began to seem incomprehensibly blended in her judgment. It was her belief that evil could not come forth from good. Yet here was a murderer who dwarfed in gentleness, patience, and love any man she had ever known. She had almost lost track of her more outside concerns when early one morning Judkins presented himself before her in the courtyard. Thin, hard, burnt, bearded, with a dust and sage thick on him, with his leather wristband shining from use, and his boots worn through on the stirrup side, he looked the rider of riders. He wore two guns and carried a Winchester. Jane greeted him with surprise and warmth, set meat and bread and drink before him, and called Lassiter out to see him. The men exchanged glances, and the meaning of Lassiter's keen inquiry and Judkins' bold reply, both unspoken, was not lost upon Jane. "'Where's your horse?' asked Lassiter aloud. "'Left him down the slope,' answered Judkins. "'I footed it in a ways and slept last night in the sage. I went to the place you told me you most always slept.' but didn't strike you. I moved up some, near the spring, and now I go there nights. Judkins, the white herd? queried Jane, hurriedly. Miss Witherstein, I make proud to say I've not lost a steer. For a good while after that stampede Lassiter milled, we had no trouble. Why, even the sage-dogs left us. But it's begun again, that flashing of lights over ridge-tips, and queer puffin' of smoke— and then at night strange whistles and noises. But the herds acted magnificent. And my boys, say, Miss Witherstein, they're only kids, but I ask no better riders. I got the laugh in the village for taking them out. They're a wild lot, and you know boys have more nerve than grown men, because they don't know what danger is. I'm not denying there's danger, but they glory in it, and maybe I like it myself. Anyway, we'll stick. We're going to drive the herd on the far side of the first break of Deception Pass. There's a great round valley over there, and no ridges or piles of rocks to aid these stampeders. The rains are due. We'll have plenty of water for a while, and we can hold that herd from anybody except Oldring. I come in for supplies. I'll pack a couple of burros and drive out after dark tonight. Judkins, take what you want from the storeroom. Lassiter will help you. I, I can't thank you enough, but— Wait. Jane went to the room that had once been her father's, and from a secret chamber in the thick stone wall she took a bag of gold, and, carrying it back to the court, she gave it to the rider. There, Judkins, and understand that I regard it as little for your loyalty. Give what is fair to your boys, and keep the rest. Hide it. Perhaps that would be wisest. Oh, Miss Witherstein, ejaculated the rider. I couldn't earn so much in, in ten years. It's not right. I oughtn't take it. Judkins, you know I'm a rich woman. I tell you, I've few faithful friends. I've fallen upon evil days. God only knows what will become of me and mine. So take the gold. She smiled in understanding of his speechless gratitude, and left him with Lassiter. 
Presently she heard him speaking low at first, then in louder accents, emphasized by the thumping of his rifle on the stones. "'As infernal a job as even you, Lassiter, ever heard of.' "'Why, son?' was Lassiter's reply. "'This breaking of Miss Witherstein may seem bad to you, but it ain't bad yet. Some of these wall-eyed fellers who look just as if they were walking in the shadow of Christ himself, right down the sunny road, now they can think of things and do things that are really hell-bent. Jane covered her ears and ran to her own room, and there, like a caged lioness, she paced to and fro, till the coming of little Fay reversed her dark thoughts. The following day, a warm and muggy one, threatening rain, a while Jane was resting in the court, a horseman clattered through the grove and up to the hitching-rack. He leaped off and approached Jane with the manner of a man determined to execute difficult mission, yet fearful of its reception. In the gaunt, wiry figure and the lean, brown face, Jane recognized one of her Mormon riders, Blake. It was he of whom Judkins had long since spoken. Of all the riders ever in her employ, Blake owed her the most, and as he stepped before her, removing his hat and making manly efforts to subdue his emotion, he showed that he remembered. "'Miss Witherstein, mother's dead,' he said. "'Oh, Blake!' exclaimed Jane, and she could say no more. "'She died free from pain in the end, and she's buried, resting at last, thank God. "'I've come to ride for you again, if you'll have me. "'Don't think I mentioned mother to get your sympathy. "'When she was living and your riders quit, I had to also. "'I was afraid of what might be done, said to her.' "'Miss Witherstein, we can't talk of, of what's going on now. "'Blake, do you know?' "'I know a great deal. "'You understand my lips are shut. "'But without explanation or excuse, I offer my services. "'I'm a Mormon. I hope a good one. "'But there are some things... "'It's no use, Miss Witherstein. "'I can't say any more what I'd like to. "'But will you take me back?' "'Blake, you know what it means?' "'I don't care.' I'm sick of, of, I'll show you a Mormon who'll be true to you. But, Blake, how terribly you might suffer for that. Maybe. Aren't you suffering now? God knows, indeed I am. Miss Witherstein, it's a liberty on my part to speak so, but I know you pretty well. No, you'll never give in. I wouldn't, if I were you. And I, I must, something makes me tell you the worst is yet to come. That's all. I absolutely can't say more. Will you take me back, let me ride for you, show everybody what I mean? Blake, it makes me happy to hear you. How my riders hurt me when they quit. Jane felt the hot tears well to her eyes and splashed down upon her hands. I thought so much of them, tried so hard to be good to them, and not one was true. You've made it easy to forgive. Perhaps many of them really feel as you do, but dare not return to me. Still, Blake, I hesitate to take you back. Yet I want you so much. Do it, then. If you're going to make your life a lesson to Mormon women, let me make mine a lesson to the men. Right is right. I believe in you, and here's my life to prove it. You hint it may mean your life, said Jane, breathless and low. We won't speak of that. I want to come back. I want to do what every rider aches in his secret heart to do for you. Miss Witherstein, I hope did not be necessary to tell you that my mother on her deathbed told me to have courage. She knew how the thing galled me. 
She told me to come back. Will you take me? God bless you, Blake. Yes, I'll take you back. And will you, will you accept gold from me? Miss Witherstein. I just gave Judkins a bag of gold. I'll give you one. If you will not take it, you must not come back. You might ride for me a few months, weeks, days, till the storm breaks. Then you'd have nothing, and be in disgrace with your people. We'll forearm you against poverty, and me against endless regret. I'll give you gold which you can hide till some future time. Well, if it pleases you, replied Blake. But you know I never thought of pay. Now, Miss Witherstein, one thing more. I want to see this man Lassiter. Is he here? Yes, but Blake, what? Need you see him? Why? asked Jane, instantly worried. I can speak to him. Tell him about you. That won't do. I want to... I've got to tell him myself. Where is he? Lassiter is with Mrs. Larkin. She is ill. I'll call him, answered Jane, and going to the door she softly called for the rider. A faint musical jingle preceded his step. Then his tall form crossed the threshold. Lassiter, here's Blake, an old rider of mine. He has come back to me, and he wishes to speak to you. Blake's brown face turned exceedingly pale. Yes, I had to speak to you, he said swiftly. My name's Blake. I'm a Mormon and a rider. Lately I quit Miss Witherstein. I've come to beg her to take me back. Now, I don't know you, but I know what you are. So I've this to say to your face. It would never occur to this woman to imagine, let alone suspect me to be a spy. She couldn't think it might just be a low plot to come here and shoot you in the back. Jane Witherstein hasn't that kind of a mind. Well, I've not come for that. I want to help her to pull a bridle along with Judkins and, and you. The thing is, do you believe me? I reckon I do, replied Lassiter. How this slow, cool speech contrasted with Blake's hot, impulsive words. You might have saved some of your breath. See here, Blake, cinch this in your mind. Lassiter has met some square Mormons, and maybe— Blake, interrupted Jane, nervously anxious to terminate a colloquy that she perceived was an ordeal for him. Go at once and fetch me a report of my horses. Miss Witherstein, you mean the big drove down in the sage-cleared fields? Of course, replied Jane. My horses are all there, except the blooded stock I keep here. Haven't you heard, then? Heard? No. What's happened to them? They're gone, Miss Witherstein. Gone these ten days past. Dorn told me, and I rode down to see for myself. Lassiter, did you know? asked Jane, whirling to him. I reckon so. But what was the use to tell you? It was Lassiter turning away his face, and Blake studying the stone flags at his feet, that brought Jane to the understanding of what she betrayed. She strove desperately, but she could not rise immediately from such a blow. "'My horses! My horses! What's become of them?' Dorn said the riders report another drive by Oldring, and I trailed the horses miles down the slope toward Deception Pass. "'My red herd's gone!' My horse is gone. The white herd will go next. I can stand that. But if I lost Black Star and Night, it would be like parting with my own flesh and blood. Lassiter, Blake, am I in danger of losing my racers? 
A rustler, or, or anybody stealing hosses of yours, would most of all want the blacks,' said Lassiter. His evasive reply was affirmative enough. The other rider nodded gloomy acquiescence. "'Oh, oh!' Jane Witherstein choked with violent utterance. "'Let me take charge of the blacks?' asked Blake. "'One more rider won't be any great help to Judkins, but I might hold Black Star and Knight if you put such store on their value.' "'Value? Blake, I love my racers. Besides, there's another reason why I mustn't lose them. You go to the stables. Go with Jurd every day when he runs the horses, and don't let them out of your sight.' If you would please me, win my gratitude, guard my black racers. When Blake had mounted and ridden out of the court, Lassiter regarded Jane with the smile that was becoming rarer as the days sped by. Pears to me, as Blake says, you do put some store on them hosses. Now I ain't gainsaying that the Arabians are the handsomest hosses I ever seen. But bells can beat night and run neck and neck with Black Star. Lassiter, don't tease me now. I'm miserable, sick. Bells is fast, but he can't stay with the blacks, and you know it. Only Wrangle can do that. I'll bet that big, raw-boned brute can mourn show his heels to your black racers. Jane, out there in the sage, on a long chase, Wrangle could kill your favorites. No, no, replied Jane impatiently. Lassiter, why do you say that so often? I know you've teased me at times, and I believe it's only kindness. You're always trying to keep my mind off worry. But you mean more by this repeated mention of my racers. I reckon so. Lassiter paused, and for the thousandth time in her presence moved his black sombrero round and round, as if counting the silver pieces on the band. Well, Jane, I've sort of read a little that's passing in your mind. You think I might fly from my home, from Cottonwoods, from the Utah border? I reckon... "'and if you ever do and get away with the blacks, "'I wouldn't like to see Wrangle left here on the sage. "'Wrangle could catch you. "'I know Venters had him, but you never can tell. "'Maybe he hasn't got him now. "'Besides, things are happening, "'and something of the same queer nature might have happened to Venters. "'God knows you're right. "'Poor Burn, how long he's gone. "'In my trouble I've been forgetting him. "'But Lassiter, I've little fear for him.' I've heard my rider say he's keen as a wolf. As to your reading my thoughts, well, your suggestion makes an actual thought of what was only one of my dreams. I believe I dreamed of flying from this wild borderland, Lassiter. I've strange dreams. I'm not always practical in thinking of my many duties, as you said once. For instance, if I dared, if I dared, I'd ask you to saddle the blacks and ride away with me and hide me. Jane! The rider's sunburnt face turned white. A few times Jane had seen Lassiter's cool calm broken, when he had met little Fay, when he had learned how and why he had come to love both child and mistress, when he had stood beside Millie Earn's grave. But one and all they could not be considered in the light of his present agitation. Not only did Lassiter turn white, not only did he grow tense, not only did he lose his coolness— but also he suddenly, violently, hungrily, took her into his arms and crushed her to his breast. "'Lassiter!' cried Jane, trembling. It was an action for which she took sole blame. Instantly, as if dazed, weakened, he released her. "'Forgive me,' went on Jane. 
I'm always forgetting your, your feelings. I thought of you as my faithful friend. I'm always making you out more than human. Only, let me say, I meant that about riding away. I'm wretched, sick of this, this, oh, something bitter and black grows on my heart. Jane, the hell of it, he replied with deep intake of breath, is you can't ride away. Maybe realizing it accounts for my grabbing you that way, as much as the crazy boy's rapture your words gave me. I don't understand myself, but the hell of this game is you can't ride away. Lassiter, what on earth do you mean? I'm an absolutely free woman. You ain't absolutely anything of the kind. I reckon I've got to tell you. Tell me all. It's uncertainty that makes me a coward. It's faith and hope. "'Blind love, if you will, that makes me miserable. "'Every day I awake believing, still believing. "'The day grows, and with it doubts, fears, "'and that black bat-hate that bites hotter and hotter into my heart. "'Then comes night. I pray. I pray for all, and for myself. "'I sleep, and I awake free once more, "'trustful, faithful, to believe, to hope. "'Then, oh my God, I grow and live a thousand years till night again.' "'But if you want to see me a woman, tell me why I can't ride away. "'Tell me what more I'm to lose. Tell me the worst.' "'Jane, you're watched. There ain't no single move of yours, "'except when you're hid in your house, that ain't seen by sharp eyes. "'The cottonwood grove's full of creepin', crawlin' men, like Indians in the grass. "'When you rode, which wasn't often lately, the sage was full of sneakin' men. "'At night they crawl under your windows into the court.' "'and I reckon into the house. "'Jane Witherstein, you know, never locked a door. "'This here grove's a hummin' beehive of mysterious happenings. "'Jane, it ain't so much that these souls keep out of my way "'as me keepin' out of theirs. "'They're goin' to try to kill me. That's plain. "'But maybe I'm as hard to shoot in the back as in the face. "'So far I've seen fit to watch only. "'This all means, Jane, that you're a marked woman. "'You can't get away, not now.' Maybe later, when you're broken, you might. But that's sure doubtful. Jane, you're to lose the cattle that's left, your home and ranch, an amber spring. You can't even hide a sack of gold. For it couldn't be slipped out of the house, day or night, and hid or buried, let alone be rid off with. You may lose all. I'm telling you, Jane, hoping to prepare you if the worst does come. I told you once before about that strange power I've got to feel things. Lassiter, what can I do? Nothing, I reckon, except know what's coming, and wait, and be game. If you'd let me make a call on Tull, and a long-deferred call on... Hush, hush, she whispered. Well, even that wouldn't help you any in the end. What does it mean? Oh, what does it mean? I am my father's daughter, a Mormon, yet I can't see. I've not failed in religion, in duty... For years I've given with a free and full heart. When my father died, I was rich. If I'm still rich, it's because I couldn't find enough ways to become poor. What am I, what are my possessions, to set in motion such intensity of secret oppression? Jane, the mind behind it all, is an empire-builder. But, Lassiter, I would give freely all I own to avert this, this wretched thing. If I gave, that would leave me with faith still. Surely my, my churchmen think of my soul. If I lose my trust in them... Child, be still, said Lassiter, with a dark dignity that had in it something of pity. 
You're a woman, fine and big and strong, and your heart matches your size. But in mind you're a child. I'll say a little more, then I'm done. I'll never mention this again. Among many thousands of women, you're one who has bucked against your churchmen. They tried you out, and failed of persuasion, and finally of threats. You meet now the cold steel of a will as far from Christ-like as the universe is wide. You're to be broken. Your body's to be held, given to some man, made, if possible, to bring children into the world. But your soul? What do they care for your soul? End of chapter 12